You might remember that old humorous song, Lord, it's hard to be humble. And maybe some of you sing that when you look into the mirror yet today. Yet in reality, if we're honest with ourselves, we've all suffered moments of humiliation, haven't we? And even more than that, if we're growing in the Lord, we've, we've grown in humility and come to points in our lives where we recognize our standing before God. And God is one of God's work that he's working in us as to help us see ourselves for what we are and God for what he is. And the result is a humble dependence upon God. Here in this passage, we have <clears throat> what could be called, <clears throat> excuse me this morning, what could be called the humiliation or the condescension of the Son of God. But, it's, but his is completely different. First of all, we know Jesus did not deserve it. It wasn't normal for him. It wasn't his standing. Because the fact is, I am a sinner. We are sinners who are weak in the flesh. We can experience many moments of, hu of humiliation. I can be a klutz. I can trip over my tongue. I speak when I shouldn't, and so on. So as a sinner, we have a humble standing and often humiliating behavior. We deserve we deserve it. But Jehovah, the Lord Jesus Christ, is Almighty God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the creator, the one who transcends his creation. He is holy and perfect in all his doings, one who deserves worship and admiration and exaltation. Therefore, the second point is his humiliation was voluntary, wasn't it? He humbled himself. In love, he chose to become a man in order that he might be our, become our Savior. In love, he endured the the scorn and mistreatment of those he created. In love beyond imagination, he bore the wrath of God for our sins on that cross. He willingly humbled himself for you and I. And that was for the joy that was set before him, the joy of rescuing and redeeming our souls. And as we come to this passage in verse 5, we're told, let that mind, let this mind, the mind of Christ, this attitude that Jesus willingly entered into be in us. And in this context, we see that we're to have this mind in fellowship and service as God's people, as God's church. And we're, and we're to do that in order to fulfill, I believe, chapter 1, verse 27, where we're told to strive together for the faith of the gospel, where we have a job to do to forward the cause of Christ. And we're to have this mind, the mind of Christ, in order to accomplish that. We've seen that in, in our efforts together to further the gospel, we're to have conduct worthy of the gospel. We've seen in the end of chapter 1 that we expect to suffer for the sake of the gospel. As we get into chapter 2, we see as his body, we're to be unified in one purpose in serving the gospel. And as a family, we are to serve, honor, and prefer one another in the gospel. Humility required in order to further the gospel of Christ. And remember, we said humility is not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves ourselves less. It's taking our rightful place as a servant of God and serving others, whatever the need might be. And then the Bible not only gives us that challenge, but then tells us how by getting, giving us the greatest example there could ever be, beginning of verse 5. Let, let this mind be in you. This is how you get there. This is how you accomplish that, that humility of service and fellowship that God desires in his family is to adopt the mind of Christ. And it's something we do willfully. It says let. There's an there's a, there's a aspect of surrender in our lives to the, to the mind of Christ. And surrender should be the normal mentality of the believer. A su submission to God because he is our creator. He is our redeemer. He's purchased us with his blood. He knows what he's talking about. He's given us his word. And we should surrender to his mind, to his thinking. 
That's, and, and therefore, it, it is volitional for us to allow God to, to do the work of conforming us to Jesus Christ, of changing our thinking. And it, ne- and it needs to be voluntary, and it needs to be purposeful, because naturally, we exalt self, and we pursue our own wants over the wants or needs of others. And we only serve when it suits me, when it makes me feel good, and when it's convenient for me. That's the normal attitude of the flesh. It's all about me. And what we see in Christ, it's not about me in our lives. And so we're to let this mind, his mind, which was also in Christ Jesus, be in us. The mind of Christ. Jesus who willingly, though he did not deserve it, humbled himself in order to meet my needs. This is our great example that God is laying before us here as a pointed illustration of how we ought to think as Christians. Jesus is our example and our pattern of how we are to think and how we are to approach life. Because pride, independence will always drive us to prefer ourselves and promote ourselves. And we are under the illusion that doing so brings us the greatest satisfaction and reward in life. But in Jesus, we find something different. We find a different way of thinking. We find for the joy that was set before him, for the joy of making a difference, for the joy of rescuing humanity, he humbled himself in order to serve and meet our needs. And that is God's path to joy. Not self-promotion, but, humil- but, but, but humility and service. And that's the example Jesus sets before us. And it is the example that we're told in verse 5 that should be in us, which was also in him. Now it makes sense, again, because if, we're, if you're a Christian here this morning, Christ lives in you. He lives in us. He resides in us. We are, we are p- part of his body. We are a vessel that he uses to express his life. And this is the attitude God wants to develop in us, this attitude of humble service and surrender to the needs of others. And this is, therefore, God is saying, let, it, let the work happen. Surrender to this. And sometimes the way we do that is to really be honest about our attitude of service. Are we really serving others, preferring others, honoring others? Are we the ones, the first ones to step up to help when there's, when there's help needed? First one to reach out when someone needs ministering to? Are we the first one in a, in, in a hospital room when someone's in the hospital? Are we the first one to drop them an email? It's not that it's a race to be first, but do we step up automatically? We're going to see that later in the chapter because the rest of this chapter is going to give us other examples of a servant's heart. And so God says, let that mind be in you. This is what God wants to accomplish in us. He wants to change our, our way of life by, way, by changing the way we think on the inside. And therefore, by God's grace, becoming a servant, a reflection or a vessel of Jesus Christ in our lives. And so in case we don't get it, what God is encouraging us to do in the end of chapter 1, into chapter 2, he leaves here an unimaginable and awesome example of the detail concerning God himself putting himself under our greatest need the king of king and lord of lords becoming a man and dying for our sins and so God gives us this detail in verse 6 where he says who Jesus being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God the word form is the Greek word morphe and it really means the nature or essence of a thing Nature or essence that subsists in the individual, according to Vine's dictionary. In other words, morphe is the nature. It's what things are made up of. It means that Jesus had the essence or the same attributes as a Godhead. And wherever you look in life, everything in life has an essence. It has attributes. 
that make it what it is, whether it's, whether it's a, a table, a light bulb, or a car, or whatever it is. They all have certain attributes that make it, it what it is. And what the Bible is saying here, Jesus was in the form of God. He had the nature and essence of God because he was God. And that's why he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. New American Standard Bible puts it a different way. He says he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped because he was God. See, this is a statement of his deity. This is what introduces this awesome passage on the humiliation of Jesus Christ is it starts out with the fact that he was God. He was in a form. He had the nature and essence of God, and he didn't think equality with God something to be grasped. In other words, he's not like you and I, is he? Now, for us to be like God is something to be grasped something to be sought after, but Jesus didn't have to because he was God. It was a simple way of saying that Jesus is equal with God because he was God. And we find that, don't we, in John chapter 1, that the word, when the word became flesh, when Jesus was born of this world, he was with God in the beginning with God because he was God. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15, talks about the, the fact that he is the creator. He is the preeminent one. And so this passage, this, this first verse is significant because it establishes the fact that God, in his, that as God, his humiliation was undeserved. He was in the form and essence of God. He deserves our worthy and praise and, and admiration. Yet is this humiliation, this, this condescension that describes his first coming, and by the way, his second coming will be way different, won't it? Then he'll come as God. He'll come in all his glory, in all his majesty, in all authority, in all power when he, when he comes to, to judge and put down all rule and authority and to establish his millennial kingdom, as we see in the book of Revelation. That will characterize the second coming. He will come in the appearance as God, and, he, and at that time every knee will bow, what will it not? But in his first coming, he came in humility to rescue and to save. And that's described in verse 7 but made himself of no reputation. Notice this was willingly. He made himself. He had to make himself of no reputation because he had a reputation, you might say. He had a reputation as being almighty God, but he willingly chose to humble himself for you and I, something he willingly and purposely did. Now, the make himself of no reputation, some versions use the word emptied himself. And we call this concept, the kenosis of Christ. And so the question is, is, always has been, what did Christ empty himself of? What did he rid himself of, so to speak? Well, according to the Bible Knowledge Commentary, emptied from the Greek kenao, points to the vesting of his self-interest, but not of his deity. And I think when you compare scripture with scripture, that's what you find. That Jesus Christ divested himself of his self-interest, but not of his deity. Nowhere in scripture do we see that Jesus ceased to become God. McGee says this in his commentary, of what did the Lord Jesus empty himself when he came to this earth? I believe that he emptied himself of the prerogatives of, of deity. He lived on this earth with certain limitations, but they were self-limitations. There's never a moment when he wasn't God, and he is not less God because he was a man, yet he emptied himself of the prerogatives of his deity. You know, the times on earth we see Jesus operating in his, with his deity, 
At times he operated in his humanity. There's times he was hungry and thirsty, and yet he fed the 5,000. And the scriptures are full of those illustrations of both the expression of, of the humanity and deity of, of Christ. Turn with me to John 17. I think we see another aspect of the emptying of himself in this step from heaven to earth, from a deity into, into humanity. Here in John 17, we find Jesus' prayer begins with a prayer for himself and between him and his father and, begin, and extends through a prayer for his disciples. But verse 1 says, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may also, also may glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. What was that glory? He said, I want my it's time for my glory to be restored. It was the expression of his attributes. That is what is... That is the essence of God, is his attributes, his character, the fact that he's holy, the fact that he's righteous, the fact that he's just, that he's loving, that he's truthful, and so on. All those different attributes of God, which will cause us to, to bow and worship and admiration. In fact, I believe all eternity for saints will be a discovery of the riches of, the, of his person, as we discover the depth of those attributes throughout eternity. That's his glory, and that's what he laid aside, was the prerogatives of, in, in the appearance of his glory. And he says, restore that now to me. I finished the work you sent me to do. It's time to come home and restore to me the glory I had before, before I became a man. And so going back to Philippians chapter 2, what we find here is that Jesus laid aside the free and full expression of his, of his attributes. He didn't cease to become God. He didn't, he didn't rid himself of the attributes. He just freed himself, laid aside the expression of those attributes as when he became a man and laid aside his visible glory. It goes on then, here in our passage, in Philippians chapter 2, to say he first made himself of no reputation, he emptied himself, and then he took the form of a bondservant and, and coming in the likeness of men. Once again, we have the word form, the word morphe, same word. And what he's saying is Jesus took on the nature and essence of man. He became a man. He be took on the nature and essence of man, therefore he appeared as a man. The ESV says he was, he was being born in the likeness of men. And we find in the scriptures, as we understand this as Christians, that Jesus was 100% man while being 100% God. And it's interesting in John 1.14 where it says the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. First we see that the word was made flesh. The word, the living word, Jesus Christ was made flesh. He became a man. He dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. And, it was a, and, and, what, we, and what John beheld, what others beheld while Jesus was on the earth was an aspect of his glory. And he, and, he, and he describes what those aspects were. He said he was full of grace and truth. And Jesus took on the form of a man, but as a man, he displayed what it meant to live like God. 
live in a godly fashion, live true to his godly character. What John saw was grace and truth lived out in human experience. And I believe that, that, that John is saying he was 100% grace, 100% truth. Grace representing the, the aspect of Jesus Christ, the aspect of the Godhead of love, compassion, kindness, and so on. Truth re representing the righteousness and the holiness and the justice of God. And that's what they observed, and it was glorious. It wasn't like the visible glory that we may observe sometime, the full manifestation of his Godhead, but it's like, it's like the deity of Christ could not help but to be seen, could it? In all his compassion and love and mercy and kindness and righteousness and holiness on this earth. It was a glorious thing because it was of God. It was glorious because it was unlike man. It was also glorious because Jesus made it possible for us to live with that same glorious conduct because it's Christ who lives in me. It was a glorious thing he saw. And I think, in reality, if you and I want to have a friend, enjoy a friendship, there couldn't be a better friend, could there, than Jesus? And I don't think there could be a better friend than one who is characterized by these, these godly attributes, aspects of, of grace and truth in our lives. It was glorious is what they observed. So Jesus was the God-man who voluntarily lived without, with self-imposed limitations. He was God while he was man. You know, it's interesting that though in John 18, 6, we find when his when the posse came to arrest the Lord Jesus and he was about to experience the torture and abuse and humiliation in their hands. John 18, 6 says, when they asked for him, and he says this, now he's, when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Just declaring that he was the I am, knocked them off their feet. And this is something they did voluntarily. It just was that momentary display of his deity. And it knocked them off their feet. And all he said, I am he. And yet, moments later, he submits, voluntarily surrendered to their abuse and their ridicule. And his arrest and trial and persecution he endured leading to the cross. If you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4, we'll see though he was, he is 100% God and 100% man, he is different from man in one aspect. Hebrews chapter 4, if you would please. Here in this passage where we're encouraged to go to the Lord Jesus to find grace and mercy to help for in time of need in verse 16, it tells us in verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus understands us. He gets it. He gets us. He understands us. Because he lived as a man. And he was at all points tempted like we are, or tested like we are, tempted and tested, yet without sin. And there's the distinction, isn't it? He did not have the nature of sin that you and I have as, as humans. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7. And I believe the writer of Hebrews makes this distinction more than once in his book to establish before these Jews to whom he is writing that Jesus was deity. He was God in the flesh. He wasn't just a great prophet, as some in those days were saying. He was God himself 
verse, chapter 7, verse 26 says, For such a high priest was fitting for us, who was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily, as, those, as other high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's, for this he did once for all when he offered up himself. And what he's saying here is the, is, is the priest who served in the, in the temple, in the Jewish temple, first had to offer sacrifices for their sins to make sure they were right before God before they could minister on the behalf of others. But that is one aspect of the priesthood Jesus never had to do because he had no sin. He was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. And so though he was 100% man, we know that he was without sin, which, which ultimately qualified him to be our substitute, did it not. And as we go back to Philippians chapter 2, we find that next step in his condescension, a step that of humility that is so ama amazing because it is so undeserved. He was without sin. And in verse 8, we find himself humbling himself to become obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. You know, really in these verses, we have three as aspects of the condescension of Jesus here. Remember, these, this is what he did for us. This is, wasn't a, a, a computer game he was playing like so many do today. This is reality. This is God himself. It's beyond imagination. First, he took on human flesh. In fact, turn me to, to Hebrews chapter 2, if you would, please. Hebrews chapter 2. I should have had you go there first. But turning pages keeps us all awake, me included here this morning. Hebrews 2 verse 14 said, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, children are you and I, mankind, he himself likewise shared in the same. He himself. Now, he himself is, is stated that way because this is an amazing thing. He himself, God himself, the Son of God himself, the second person of the Godhead, shared in, the, in flesh and blood that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. He came in order to qualify to be our, our substitute, to, to release us to deliver us from hell, to save us from ourselves, and to, and to free us from the evils of this present world. He took on human flesh. That was the first aspect of his condensation. He stepped into humanity. And secondly, back in, in Philippians 2, he became obedient to the point of death. Interesting that stated that he became obedient. You would assume that would not be an issue, but obviously it was for his humanity. He often stated in his ministry that he came to do the Father's will. He said, myself, I can do nothing. And it was very clear in life that Jesus had submitted himself to the will of the Father. Now, I don't know that that was necessarily the case before Jesus became a man, before the, before the incarnation of Christ. There was equality in the Godhead. There was no need to, for surrender or submission. They were one, and they are one. But in his humanity, because he became a man, it brought the necessity of surrender. He became obedient to 
the will of the Father. In, in his deity, he was equal, but in his humanity, he was submissive to the Father. And that's a step of humiliation as well, a condescension. That went with the package. The third aspect here is he died the absolute worst of deaths, even the death of the cross. That's a big word in this passage, even. Now, it's not always a big word in our vocabulary, but it is here. Even, putting the emphasis on the death of the cross. You know, we sing the song, his love has no limits, his grace has no measure. And sometimes we forget the magnitude of what Jesus endured on the cross. Now, I don't believe here he's highlighting this particular form of capital punishment as excessively cruel. I don't think that at all is the point of the passage. Instead, he's emphasizing here what occurred on that cross. Because the death of the cross represents all that transpired in those hours upon the cross. It was a death that, it's a unique death. A death that no one has or ever will experience in dying for the sins of the world. As a lamb of God, taking away the sins of the world and suffering sin's consequence on that cross. And he did that for you and I. Turn with me, if you will, to Mark 15, please. It describes here the last moments of the cross. And all this is familiar, and some of it may be a little technical, but it all transpired in love. For God so loved the world, he gave. That word gave represents all that is being described in Philippians chapter 2. It's describing what, what it meant for the Father to give his son, to become a man, to become obedient to the point of the cross and to endure the death of the cross. God so loved the world. And this alone should humble us. This alone should make us want to break out in praise because it was my sins, your sins, that put him there. It was you and I he had in mind upon that cross when he bore our sins. Notice in Mark 15, here in verse 33, it says, Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now that is a stunning statement. That the second person of the Godhead was forsaken on the cross. It's significant. Because... It, is, it represents the full payment for sin that was paid. Because we know as sinners that the wages of sin is death. Don't we? Romans 6.23. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. And that death is an eternal death. It is an eternal separation from God. And, uh, and sometime in those three hours upon the cross, and maybe whatever point this was when Jesus cried out at the ninth hour, he says, why have you separated yourself from me? Why have you forsaken me? Jesus experienced all the awfulness of, a, of the lake of fire, of eternal hell when he was forsaken. And we believe when he said, my God, my God, he's referring to the Father and the Spirit. Why have you forsaken me? Well, he knows, but that was, he says, what he exclaimed when he cried on his humanity. Because during that time, he bore our spiritual death on the cross. He bore our hell on the cross. He bore our sins on the cross. Let's look at a few verses. Let's go over to 1 Peter chapter 1. And I want to take a moment this, this morning to reflect on, to remind us of the awfulness of even the death of the cross. 1 Peter chapter 1.
And Peter, in his first book, mentions, highlights, you might say, a few mentions in regards to the, the suffering of the cross because he witnessed it. He was there. He was there when it turned dark on the land for three hours so no one could look upon the Son of God being offered by the Father for our sins. 1 Peter 1.18 says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He's the one who gave himself for us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Who himself, there we have it again, he himself, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sin, might live under righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. He himself bore our sins in his body. We don't know how that worked, how that transpired. But in those three hours of darkness, something transpired between the, between the Godhead and Jesus Christ on the cross in which he bore our sins. Chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just, the, that's the perfect God, for the unjust, sinful man, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but then made alive in the spirit. Hallelujah, he rose from the dead. Let's turn to the Old Testament, this wonderful passage in Isaiah 53. Isaiah chapter 53, it's wonderful, this is so prophetic. It's awful in its description of what transpired at the cross. And let's just look at a few verses here, starting in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs, he carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was smitten by the Father. You know, no man put Jesus on the cross. It was God who punished him for our sins, who afflicted him. Because, verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are, he we are healed. Notice the terminology there. He was stricken. He was smitten. He was afflicted. He was wounded. He was bruised. He was chastised. By his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know, the death of Jesus Christ is more than just a death that, the, uh, that suffered phys the physical abuse of mankind who put him there. It was a transaction between the Father and the Son when God laid on him our sins. He bruised his own son our sins. And we don't know exactly what that what occurred there. But this is what the Bible tells us. Verse 8, jump to verse 8, it says, He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He, God, has put him to grief. When you make, God made his soul an offering for sin. And he shall see his seed prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his, by his knowledge, my righteous service shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. On one hand, a person should weep for the Son of God the one who was full of grace and truth, the one who had no sin, 
not just to be abused at the hand of his torturers, but to be afflicted by the hand of his father. For you and I. He experienced the wrath of God that would have taken us all eternity in hell to, to, to experience in order to pay for our sins. He took on himself. It's an amazing love. It's an amazing declaration as we go back to Philippians chapter 2 in such a simple, short passage. Even the death of the cross. The ultimate step in his humiliation for you and for I. It's an amazing price. It's amazing love. It's a terrible price he paid. And yet it should cause us to leap from our chairs and rejoice with joy, with tears of joy and thankfulness for the deliverance we experience. It should cause us to number our days and to apply our hearts to wisdom, to redeem the time. It should encourage us to go out and, and, and shout his love from the housetops, to share the good news of, re, of deliverance and salvation for those around us. And it is this amazing love, this, 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 this amazing humiliation of Christ, the condescension of Christ, to put himself under our greatest need, death on the cross, to rescue us, that is our example of the, of the mindset we are to have. That's really the point of this passage. Though it's such a declaration of the, of the wonder of the cross and all that was accomplished there, it is a love, is an attitude that we are to employ in our lives, to allow it to be in us. This spirit of sacrifice and service of, that Jesus exampled for us. And boy, you know what? If you have this kind of submission to one another, as the Bible encourages us to have, you have great relationships, whether it's in a marriage, in a family, in a church, in a nation. What's the greatest need in our nation? For people to come to know the love of Christ, so that they might experience the mind of Christ. This is the love that God wants to, for us to let be in us as God develops us in our lives. Well, then this passage takes a real sharp right turn, doesn't it? It says, therefore, therefore, because Jesus accomplished it all, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Here we find the exaltation of Christ, that in every, at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and earth, under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice, God's the one who's exalted him, not mankind. We recognize his exalted position, his glorious accomplishment, his standing at the right hand of the Father. He is worthy of our praise. Ephesians 1 6 says, To the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. And that's the praise that that's that should be the response we have. It's like I don't think the writer could help but write this passage. After considering the great love and, and, and the price that was paid for your sins and mine, he erupts in the exaltation of Christ. Turn with me, if you will, for a moment to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, and we just looked at this recently in our men's Bible study. But I think we see this response, the response which should be normal for the one who really gets a hold of this passage, the one who allows the Spirit of God to grip his heart with this passage and it should have the response that we see here in Revelation chapter 5. And we find in Revelation chapter 5 is a true worship service, not the kind of worship service that simply makes me feel good about myself, that provides for me a good experience, how lame is that? Look at this passage. This is a worship service. Now when they had taken the scroll, 
the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Remember, there's no one who could open the scroll, a scroll of God's judgments here in chapter 5, but there was one who was worthy, and that was the Lamb of God. And notice, they fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. And that's what, that's what the last half of that passage of Philippians 2, it's a new song. God's exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. And notice what they sing. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, John says, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures, the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature was in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Amen. I guess the four living creatures were Baptists, I guess, said amen. What a glorious picture. But this should be normal in our experience. This is, we should have the same reaction the writer of Philippians did. When he, when he enters into this crescendo, crescendo of adulation of Christ. You know, we see in Philippians 2 as well as here that, that every knee will bow, even the unsaved. Yet it's interesting, when you get to the end of the book of Revelation, the last moments before the second coming, we in essence see that the, the merchants of the earth, as they're called, shaking their fists at God, angry at God for destroying their gain, their livelihood, their lives. Still shaking their fists, knowing it was God, shaking their fists. Yet they won't shake their fists for long, because every knee will bow. Someone mentioned to me recently, they just heard a message on that passage and, um, and asked this question, or just pointed out this, this question is, what is it going to take for the unsaved to see before they're going to bow, finally bow? What glory are they going to see and observe? Well, in Revelation chapter 5, it becomes obvious. They saw the Lamb and all his splendor and his glory. Every knee bowed and they erupted in praise. So in Philippians chapter 2, we find that exaltation comes after humiliation. It becomes a pattern for us as well. Now Jesus deserved the glory and praise and honor described in Revelation chapter 5. It's a picture of something that's going to occur in our future. We're going to have deja vu when we see this occur in heaven again. He said, I remember that verse, those passages from the Bible. He deserves it. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he humbled himself to rescue us and offers that salvation to any and all by simple faith in Christ. But for us, it's also a pattern in the sense that reward will come after service. You know, we ought to, as God's children, be anticipating, not in our own pride, but in our own love for Christ, the hearing, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You see, we're here for the same 
cause that Christ is here for. He was here to rescue mankind, and he's left us here amidst all the pitfalls and, and awfulness and wickedness and ungodliness of this earth so that we could continue that work of winning the loss of Christ. We're here to serve. We're here to further the gospel. And we've seen in the book of Philippians some of those things that, that condition us to prepare us to be, to be furthering the gospel together as a church family. And the Bible reminds us that though we serve now, and though we suffer now, and though we sacrifice now, our exaltation comes later. Not in personal glorification, but in reward. When we stand before our Lord. Because that passage in Luke 19, as well as other gospel accounts, well done, our good and faithful service, was simply for faithfulness. Wasn't it? For whatever God had given the individuals to do, whatever talents he had given them, opportunities and occasions he had given them, and that's what God wants. He's not looking for great exploits, promotion, popularity, to become a Christian writer and be a bestseller, be the number one, number one person on the, on the uh, list of Bible conference speakers. He's looking for humble servants, those that get down and dirty, those who put themselves under, those who lay aside, just like Jesus did. Not simply for the, some purpose of self-satisfaction, but in response to the opportunities God brings our way to be used. To lift one another up so that together we could reach the lost for Christ. You see, our reward will come someday. You know, the Bible says in the case we'll throw our crowns at his feet. Because in reality, it's Christ in us that accomplishes anything of worth. But our service is now. And that's what God's calling us to. And that's the example. And this is, this is the most extreme example. You can say, you want to talk about extreme example? This is it. There's nothing like it on earth. There isn't a more, there's a more extreme example. But it's extreme because it was God himself, deity, who existed in the form of God. He had the nature and essence of God because he was God, took such a hum humble position, even the death of the cross to rescue us. We owe all to him, do we not? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Uh, we, we don't really, Father, our words thank you seem so empty and shallow compared to the great love that was expressed at the cross. Father, we don't understand how you laid on him the iniquity of us all. But Jesus, in anticipation, sweat as it were great drops of blood. Was exhausted and declared it is finished when the work was completed. But Father, some, some, during those hours on the cross, you laid on him my sin, our sin. We're so thankful for that. Thank you for the great grace that you've shown us through Christ and that salvation is free to anyone who would trust Christ by faith in his death for us. And Father, we pray that we would be like those in that vision of heaven, along with the 24 elders and thousands and ten thousands, Father, to up in true worship, that which honors you and may it be expressed in our lives, not only in, in song, in a new song that we can sing as new creations in Christ, but Father, may it, may it be expressed in, new, in a new way of living to allow Christ to be reflected in us in serving you by serving others. We develop that Christ-likeness in us, Father. We pray, may we let this mind be in us. And Father, we don't know how it occurs, but it is something you do accomplish as we surrender uh, to your teaching, to your, in your forming, in our lives. 
It's a good work you've begun. You will continue it. May we allow it to happen. So apply these things to our lives. Help us to understand what you will have for us. And may we be in submission to you each and every day. Thank you for Jesus and for all he did for us. In his name we pray.